welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello, welcome to Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. Today's show, I have David O'Leary. David is the founder and principal at Kind Wealth. Kind Wealth is a financial planning firm that also helps focus on clients finding purpose through their investing by investing in causes and in initiatives that are of meaning to them. And with that, here's my interview with David. Oh, David. Hey, thanks for having me, Jay. Nice to be here. Oh, my pleasure. So, David O'Leary, tell us all about who you are. Well, I uh, consider myself a uh, reformed free market capitalist. We're we're in the same from the same generation, and I kind of born and raised and came up and cut my teeth in an industry where you know we're taught that maximizing shareholder value was the sole and only goal of a, of a business. And I spent most of my career, uh, I did an MBA and a CFA and then spent most of my uh, first part of my career at Morningstar. And I was evaluating professional money managers and saying whether they were doing a good job of uh, stewarding investor capital. And I did that for about 10 years in Toronto and did that for about four years in South Africa. Uh, I met my wife in in 2010, and she comes from a completely different world than I do in the world of uh, humanitarian work. And that opened my eyes to an entirely different way of of thinking and being. And I spent some time living in with her in South Africa and traveling parts of Sub-Saharan Africa. And I just started to get thinking more and more about what else was going on in the world, and there, there are other people that had uh, a lot less than um, than we did. And I wanted, I started thinking a lot more about how I could use my intellectual, social, financial capital to make a more positive impact on the world. And uh, that ultimately led me to, I it's a long winding path to get here, but to found Kindwell yeah. uh, about three and a half years ago now. So yeah. And tell me about the focus of Kindwell. Yeah, so Kindwell, we focus on helping people take control of their money so that they can live life on their own terms. And so I can unpack that a bit for you. I mean, a lot of people make suboptimal decisions with their money from a financial perspective, and they're kind of destroying value along the way when they don't take advantage of benefits, when they pay more tax than they need to, when they aren't taking advantage of compounding, when they make kind of poor behavioral decisions. So we kind of help people do all the traditional, you know, make good financial decisions, but also really push beyond that and into helping them figure out what matters to them. I think traditional financial planning is often seen as a an engineering exercise, which is we need to maximize your wealth and how do we get you to from where you are to now to making that all happen financially and doesn't often... Well, I'll say, I'll say that to the numbers lovers, that's what it is, right? To yeah. those of us who actually get involved in our clients' lives to a large degree, uh, as I always say, it's, it's all about getting them what they want out of life. And that can actualize itself in any number of ways beyond their wealth, right? It can, it's, it's about experience. It's about their family. It's about the causes that matter to them. It's about leaving the footprint and legacy that they want to leave, right? So completely on board with your viewpoint, clearly. Yeah. And so so we sort of stop and focus on like, hey, wait, what, what do you want to achieve? It doesn't make ma- wealth maximization is not the only goal that you might have. Quite frankly, you might have a lot of other goals that have nothing to, that reduce your wealth, like giving yeah. it away to charity, uh, giving it to passing it on to heirs, to spending it. <laughs> so we help kind of people explore that. And, and a big part of that is there's a lot of ways that you can use money to more, at a very least, provide more alignment with your values. So, so achieve financial security, achieve financial success, but do it in a way that you feel good about. So that could come down to conscious consumerism, how you spend your money. It could come to how you give your money away. 
philanthropy and charity, and it can involve your investments. Excellent. So I brought you on to specifically talk about the investment angle and and hmm. basically giving meaning to the way you invest money and having the way you invest money match other values. And you kind of you kind of hit upon something earlier, which is basically known as the Friedman Doctrine, named after Milton Friedman, where specifically talking about how the only job of a of a board is to maximize shareholder value, which I think is one of the most crackpot things I've ever heard in my life. Because my response is really to just survey all the shareholders. Because as every business owner listening to this will attest to, there are probably any number of things that we could do to enrich ourselves at the expense and the detriment of the other stakeholders in our lives, whether that be the employees we have, the time spent with our own family members. I could be wealthier if I spend all my time working, but my family ain't going to be happy. The government systems, the government's in place for basically, you know, tax through tax evasion or whatever it is, uh, everything right down to the environment, right? And, you know, I don't, if I illegally dump stuff, right? Well, it's more profitable than getting rid of it that way. So I think he added to the confines of the law, but as we always also know that what is legal is not necessarily right or matches our ethics. So I still remember back in university, scratching my head about that one and saying, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's more to it than that. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you were ahead of, you're ahead of me because, I mean, I grew up watching Wall Street and Gordon Gecko, and that he was, you know, a hero in that movie. I mean, partly facetiously, but I certainly wasn't like, he's a bad character and at the end of the movie sort of exposed for that. But it certainly wasn't like, oh, his, it's taken maybe that, that even free market capitalism to extreme because he went into the, into the territory of, you know, just outright became, was a criminal. <laughs> but you still didn't, like, you don't, I wasn't questioning his, his philosophy. And I think, you know, a lot of us, who were indoctrinated in the investment world weren't. And this idea, you know, that you're raising here is that like, let's change shareholder to like stakeholders and be a, and, and acknowledge that there are a lot of different stakeholders, uh, both kind of formal and informal that are impacted when a business operates. So yeah, and I think that's a, a realization that's growing tremendously. And people, I very, the very first time I came across an investment that was considered, you know, socially responsible was back in the late 1990s when I just was starting my, my career. And there was one client I heard who had some of these, it's called ethical funds at the time. And, uh, and it was different name. Yeah. Different name now, but that, that brand is gone. And then for the next 20 years of my career, 15 years of my career, you, you know, you didn't hear a whole lot about it in the last three, four, five years. It's just really taken off dramatically. Yeah. I think part of that is, well, there's a lot of reasons for it. So let's, let's first, let's first talk about what ethical investing or social responsible investing or ESG investing. There's a lot of different acronyms. SRI means social responsible, but I think more commonly now the term that we actually define is ESG, environmental, social, and governance. So let's talk about what it means to invest with that type of framework. Sure. Yeah. So ESG, as you say, stands for environmental, social, and governance. It can actually mean different things. So even even within ESG, we need to, I think, delineate and define our terms. At its, I think at its most basic and most adopted form, it would be an investment manager who uses what I might coin, and I think Morningstar uses this terminology, um, ESG considerations, meaning they're in the business of evaluating investments, stocks, bonds, whatever those investments are. And traditionally, what they would look at are all the financial factors involved that they believe are going to impact the price of that security and dictate whether it's a good investment to make or not. And there's an increasing recognition these days, which again, getting back to my earlier point, just was not common. People were not talking about this and doing it. And if you brought it up, they kind of looked at you like you were funny. But recognizing, hey, that these businesses do have an impact on the environment. They have an impact on people. So the social side of things and then how they're governed, you know, obviously has an impact on the business. And these factors, these environmental, social and governance factors present risks 
to you as an investor. So the obvious one is an environmental side. If you're not cleaning up after yourself and irresponsibly dumping waste, you could very well be suffer financial damage from lawsuits, uh, things like that. And so if you're treating your employees poorly and they unionize or they quit or you can't retain staff, those are all costs to the business. And so it's this recognition that, oh, right, there are factors involved in my analysis that are not don't have to do with kind of finances, account, traditional financial or kind of accounting measures, which we should be aware of because they could actually impact the return on our investment. So that even if you don't care about making the world a better place, as a selfish investor who just is trying to maximize their shareholder value, you should still at a minimum be cons- you know, be aware of and concerned with these factors. Agreed. I mean, this is all about off-balance sheet risk from one standpoint. Yes, there's benevolent aspects of it, of that. Yes, we want to be investing in good actors. We want to be, everybody's got whatever industry maybe they don't agree with, whether that be, I mean, the, the standard filters, the, the, the companies, that, the, the industries that sometimes get filtered out entirely in these, uh, in these products tend to be things like alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Like those, those three go pretty quickly. And then you also have uh, issues like nuclear sometimes, pornography sometimes, just depending on the value set. Right. So I'm sure there's a lot of people in this world who really don't want to invest in the company that eventually became Philip Morris, right? right. And it's a challenge, right? Because short of buying individual stocks for everything, and if you're going to do a properly diversified portfolio, it gets really challenging to do that on a stock-by-stock basis. Filtering out for those types of companies can be hard, right? Because if you're going to buy an ETF, you're buying the entire ETF. If you're buying a mutual fund, you're buying the entire mutual fund. So you know, in terms of the option set available to consumers today, how would you say how easy it is to, to is it to to kind of try to match your your values with what's available in the marketplace? It depends. Um, I mean, it can, it can be very, very, very difficult, and it can be fairly easy depending on what your demands are and what your values are. So, you know, you you brought a good point. I mean, like these sort of this is a strategy called kind of negative screens. So you can have these screens that say, "I'm going to buy this basket of stocks or bonds or whatever securities, and I'm just going to screen out the ones that." meat that are involved with alcohol, tobacco, weapons, whatever those things are. And those are fairly easy to find. And the more, because the more demand there is for something and the, the less prohibitive that screen or that criteria is to the way you'd normally go about investing or the, or the less, least disruption to that basket of stocks, the more the industry is going to adopt it, right? You've got a lot of people who want it, right? Like let's take, for instance, weapons. It's not really not that hard to just remove weapons from your portfolio and not like dramatically... It's not going to limit you from all sorts of sectors of the, yeah. of the economy and, yeah. and destroy your risk return profile or, or dramatically yeah. change how an investment manager has to go about managing their portfolio. And yeah, it's like the S&P 500 is made up of 20% of, of weapons manufacturers, right? It's not like you're going to have this massive right. variance from the index because you cut out weapons. Yeah. And so the more people who want that, the more the managers are immediately going to go, great, we'll, we'll at least offer a, a, a version of our portfolio without it. It's easy to do. And a lot of people want it. The less demand there is and the harder it is, the more complicated, it makes their job because they've got to change how they go about what they're doing, then the more difficult that becomes. And so I think what we see is if you've got some pretty basic wants, like some negative screens around some industries like weapons, tobacco, pornography, like pornography, no problem. <laughs> Investment managers will offer portfolios with no pornography. Most, I think probably a lot of your portfolios won't have it anyway. So, but if you say like, hey, I want to make sure that all my businesses are really focused on uh, gender equality or racial equality and racial justice, and I meet these 17, like if we take Equileap as an example of a provider of gender equality ratings and information on businesses, and they meet all of these criteria, 
okay, well, how many people are asking for this and how much work yeah. is this going to be for us to do that and how expensive is it going to be? But I would say the marketing, the demand thing is kind of broken, right? Because I mean, if you look at the statistics on the growth in ESG investing on the whole, it has been going gangbusters for a decade in the institutional market. So pensions, all kinds of large institutions have basically said, if we're going to invest, we're going to consider these factors. Whereas on the retail side, only recently is it starting to take off. I mean, I, I blame, quote unquote, the advisor populace for, you know, they just get stuck in a rut doing the thing we've always been doing and change. It almost never comes easy to this industry. But I think that, frankly, if we if these conversations were had more, meaningful, more meaningfully with clients, the number, the amount of demand would go up. And, you know, just even in my own practice, I don't specialize in this, but I support it. Right. And all we've done is add one question. We added one question to our risk tolerance questionnaire around whether or not, you know, these types of factors are important to them in consideration of the portfolio. And it's simply, no, not really. I want to learn more and discuss more or yes, absolutely. And we know two out of three results in a conversation and, and we see where we go from there. Whereas the average the average advisor is just not having this conversation. So really, I honestly think we would have a lot more demand for a lot more of these types of products if consumers were actually asked about what was important to them when investing. Yeah, no doubt. Listen, but consumers do want it. It's just a matter yeah. of how much, how badly. And, and if they don't, if their advisor is sitting down and not talking about this, they have to be extra motivated to remember to have that conversation, to bring it up, to feel like their advisor can do something about it. So I think a lot of people, as you're saying, they'll definitely do it, but they're busy and they've got a million other things to do. And if their advisor's not really entertaining the discussion, they're not going to, oh, I'm going to leave my advisor and transfer all my assets. Some people will, but but a big percentage of the population won't. So I think you're right. Advisors are could play a very meaningful difference in well, accelerating this. Well, the real life data point I have for this is well simple, the country's largest robo-advisor, who simply by by nature of asking the question, I think has like 50% of their assets go to ESG mandates, right? Like that is, you know, when people a lot of times I would get pushback from different vendors saying, Well, do you really think there's a market for this? And I'd just be beating my head against the wall saying, like, look, in my book alone, I think like 15 to 20 percent of our of our mandates are are in this space, right? And we have a much smaller amount of options to select from in this country, unfortunately, when you when you go this route. But this is important to people. One company, mass market testing, just asking the question, 50%, right? Now, you, may, you can argue that millennials are more likely to do that because they want to find purpose in their investments. But still, it, it definitively proves that there is something there. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I mean, we have 80% of people come to Kind Wealth prospects, not just clients because we ask it in the intake form as a prospect comes through the door. 80% of them are either like, mildly or very interested in um, yeah. in it. And I think what's interesting, Morningstar actually did some good research out of the US that kind of said, that kind of debunks the myth around when millennials are more interested in it. It's like the traditional yeah. belief is that it's women and, and younger people. And they, they said, well, sure, if you ask people to kind of self-identify like, hey, are you interested in this? You'll find that it's women and millennials. But if what they did was, I'm trying to remember the terminology for this kind of survey approach, but it's basically like, instead of basically people explicitly telling you, they infer your preferences from the you know your answers to a whole bunch of questions. So these questions you're making essentially trade-offs. You're given a bunch of like multiple choice uh, scenarios yeah. where like, hey, here's a stock and it has this type of impact and this type of return profile. And you're kind of making these choices without labeling it socially responsible or anything. And then they just infer, okay, like what are you, what's implied by the choices you're making in terms of the trade-offs you're willing to make? And what they find is that this interest in responsible investing goes right across the board. It's not just yep younger people and women, which I think is true because when you ask people to say like, oh, I want socially responsible investing, that has, it's laden with uh, connotation, like connotation, an identifying yeah. group, right? I yeah. may not want to yeah, associate with that group. Whereas do you want, do you want us when, you know, if you're an active manager for argument's sake, 
my process includes us not only looking at what's on the balance sheet on the income statements, but we, we dig into their environmental history. We make sure that their governance is in place. We make sure that they're, you know, they're contra, they're, they're not abusing the populaces that they're involved in, right? Like, you know, I was like, good, that's due diligence, right? right? Like that's right. what, it, and it's, it's just, we've, we've slapped the label on it because frankly, it's, it's, you know, it's important to, to it's just people saying that these things are more important to me than not. When you frame them a certain way, I think they're important to almost everybody. I mean, I've had one client joke that, you know, no, 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 give me the vice fund, you know, give me the opposite of all this, right? Which, hey, if it floats your boat, it floats your boat. What can I say? So we talked about one thing briefly earlier, which was negative screening, which was cutting out industries based off uh, companies based on industry. Let's talk about the other mechanisms for how companies select which, which stocks or bonds are going to be in the portfolio. So what other methodologies do they bring to the table for trying to figure out who's included, who's not, and to what degree? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I started down a path like within ESG, I would say you've kind of got three different approaches to it. So ESG consideration was which I sort of started explaining, which is, hey, while I'm doing this analysis, I'll think about and consider these social, environmental, and governance factors. There's something I would consider ESG integration, which is... Mm-hmm oh, no, no, these ESG factors aren't just sort of slapped on after we're done evaluating a stock or a bond and and valuing it. They're infused right into the entire process for how we go about doing research and how we go about coming up with the value of these securities. So it's a much more integrated approach. And then there might be something called ESG engagement. And ESG engagement integration often can go hand in hand, and not always, but they, they can. And engagement would be where, hey, we own positions in these companies and we're going to be active shareholders to try to pressure these companies into making positive changes on ESG factors. And so what you'll see in the, in the landscape is that there are, I think the number is somewhere in the neighborhood of thousands of funds that would fall under ESG consideration. The number, when you talk about engagement or integration, gets down to like, a couple hundred at most. Yeah. So it's, it's what we have is, I would say there's a lot of opportunity for greenwashing in the ESG and gate consideration area because it doesn't take anything for anybody to say, oh yeah, we'll consider it. But to integrate yeah. it into your process fundamentally is a much bigger. Well, and it really comes down to this meets all your other criteria, but these, do you actually walk away from it? Now you mentioned the term called greenwashing. Can you explain to us what that means? Sure. So greenwashing is essentially, uh, you can think about it as I think maybe two different things. There's kind of a say do gap. So, Hey, we say we are going to do this and we don't necessarily do it or do it as, as much as we lead you to believe. So I think ESG engagement, uh, sorry, consideration where you say, yeah, yeah, we factor in ESG considerations would be, you know, is why I think there's kind of that ripe opportunity for, we say it, but it actually doesn't change much how we go about doing what we do. And then I think about it sometimes as like what you're kind of claiming that your impact is versus what it actually is in practice. So it's all mm-hmm. about kind of gaps between what you're yeah. reporting and what leading people to believe and what's actually happening in practice. And it's not so much like lying or fabricating it, but exaggerating yeah. and or not really well, fully I mean, falling through on it. I'll be a little bit more nasty about this and say that I honestly believe that there are like every like everything in this world where there's money to be made, there are some people who take the concept, slap a sticker on it without making any fundamental changes or without making sufficient fundamental changes and try to profit from the trend, right? So there's some, you know, not all not all ESG funds are created equal in that I'm sure a lot of times when you start unpacking what's actually held in some of these things, some clients will just look at it and be like, what is going on? So one example that always came up, Suncor, right? Suncor, big, big, big energy company in uh, the oil sands. And as soon as you hear the oil sands, you think, wait a sec, wait a sec, environmental, what's going on here? But 
they have really strong governance and really strong social scores. And when people do weighted scores on where they rank, Suncor, lo and behold, makes a cutoff, right? And when does that necessarily match uh, someone's ESG beliefs? Possibly not. I'm going to plug uh, Tim Nash from Sustainable Economist. There's a wonderful resource for this. He does a lot of independent research on the individual offerings in the market and uh, on more than one occasion has, has more or less politely outed some firms for basically saying, oh, yeah, this is ESG. This is uh, on a scale of zero to 100. This is a one. So congratulations. You, you know, unfortunately, there is there is a way to be a little bit pregnant in ESG. You can't <laughs> you're never 100 percent not. And you also brought up an interesting point earlier about the uh, the engagement piece, right? So the, the, the voting your proxies to, to basically try to push companies to do the right thing. And there's a story I heard years ago. This is amusing. I don't know if you remember years ago, there was this commercial about from Campbell's Soup about like how they cut back salt in their soup cans, right? And it was this guy, he's like, oh, this, you know, here's this guy, we'll call him Dave. Dave was, Dave started questioning how he works on our line. He started questioning about the amount of salt going into our soup. And, you know, we decided to cut back and how much is that? And they show him this giant room, like up to his waist in salt. Yeah, that's BS. So basically what happened was one of the largest ESG investment firms in the U.S. was the source of that pressure that basically pushed for that. And I specifically in particular, I remember because they just taken a large stake in McDonald's. So <laughs> same, same basic pressure. So that can that just shows you that it can go beyond even the things that we consider normal. Like to them, that was a social aspect, right? Because it's worrying about your consumer's health, right? So the thing is, is that the more and more money that's plowing into these types of funds, the more and more you're going to start to see, hopefully, a lot of these, a lot of these votes, a lot of these pressurings coming on boards to do the right thing, which is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, there's a great nonprofit called Share of the Shareholder Association for Research and Education, and they Canadian based, and they work with primarily institutional investors to help them proxy vote and mm-hmm. practice good. Um, shareholder activism and and will often negotiate on behalf of their institutional clients because they have kind of expertise there. And yeah, there's there's all sorts of ways in which if you are an active shareholder and you have that type of institutional you know money behind your your dollars, where you're going to get an audience with the you know the executive leadership of these firms, you can take really bad offenders and make investments and say what an amazing opportunity I have to make a massive impact, you know, or, or if it's a collection of, of, of investors where, hey, if McDonald's, we dramatically improved McDonald's, you know, nutritional profile or its environmental impact, it has such a big impact on the economy because there's so many restaurants and so many chains and so many people that are affected. So it's harder harder to move the needle with a bigger organization, but provides opportunity to to your point, which is you could have investments in things that otherwise you'd be like, what? what? That's not a responsible and yeah, that's not a socially or yeah. environmentally responsible investment. Well, if your goal is to make change, it might be a, an excellent investment to make. And I think it's uh, it's interesting. I've even seen some fund companies go so far as to say, look, we're going to start applying ESG thinking to our mandates. But we we know we don't have competency in a bunch of these areas and literally have said, we're going to actually assign all our proxy votes on all the shares we own to this one organization who does nothing but proxy vote on ESG issues, right? right? So that that can actually, believe it or not, that type of ethical voting can be outsourced. And, you know, frankly, it's having good results slowly over time. So that's in general ESG. I want to come on to this, this concept that was known as thematic investing around environmental, mm-hmm. social, and governments. Can you speak to what that is and how it's different? Yeah, I mean, for to my mind, and, and everyone's got slightly different takes on these things. Definitions aren't perfectly nailed down, but um, I look at thematic as you say. Here's a 
issue or cause or an area that's important to me. It could be, I really believe in the power of finding clean technologies to replace you know, d- existing dirty energy solutions. I want to support carbon reduction strategies. I want to support gender equality. I want to support, I want to get rid of child labor in the supply chains, whatever those kind of issues are. And then you look for, and you build either look for investments and or build your portfolio with that in mind. And it can, doesn't have to just be one theme. It could be a variety of themes. And to me, that's where like the conversation goes from on an ESG front, where the, I think the dominant discussion there, not always, but is sort of starts with what ESG factors will maximize my financial risk return. I think you can start to get into, in some cases in ESG, you can get into, no, I care about these things for other reasons than just the financial kind of return. But when you get into thematic, I think you're now starting to, you're more likely to be having a conversation about there's something that's important to me and I want to see it expressed. It could be a financial call. Like, hey, I think clean technologies are going to really outperform. Yeah. And so I'm making that choice. But I think it's more often that people build those portfolios that way because they have a value or some issue that is important to them. I, so I want to say that lightly because I don't have data to back that up. Yeah, but, but I mean, you're right. I mean, these things are, but they're built, right? They're, they're sold that way, right? So you have, I mean, some of the themes I see more commonly, you mentioned fossil, you mentioned, sorry, um, uh, clean tech, fossil fuel free, right? Like, I mean, you can still have a very well broad market diversified portfolio, for fossil fuel free or fossil fuel reduced, like typically what they do is they reduced is, is something the effect of, well, as long as carbon emissions are below a certain threshold and more than 50% comes from renewable resources, we'll consider you for inclusion, right? And then one of the ones that's clearly thematic is women in leadership, right? Like we've seen a couple of funds surrounding, you know, your board has to have X number of women uh, minimum and X percentage of women minimum in, in the leadership positions in your firm. And, and basically that's something that's of value and importance to you. Then that's something that should be contemplated. Yeah, but you no, know, that, that that that's exactly right. I mean, and in a lot of these cases, you do got to you you actually do have a financial case to be made for it. I mean, I think there's good evidence that having diverse leadership teams, whether it's gender, racial, whatever the case is, that that actually perform better is you know I think, like diversity as a factor. I think is pretty well documented that that leads to better kind of outcomes when you're dealing with teams. Well, um, the alternative is a bunch of people who look the same, went to the same schools, and have the same life experience, right? Like yeah, when, you, like, when you have to me, this is all like, it's rather uncontroversial, like these things. I mean, when you talk, talk about, when you call it about gender equality and you are gender lens investing, then somebody may, oh, it's to your point earlier, right? Like, it depends how you frame things, right? It yeah. can be the exact same thing framed two different ways and you get a very different response to it. I think you just talk about like, hey, these leadership teams are, have diverse and complementary skill sets and perspectives. You'd be like, yeah, yeah, I definitely want that. But it's so, kind of funny too, because it's like, I look at it from the standpoint of, very often, one of the things that people talk about as a problem in leadership is groupthink, right? Like, so you have a bunch of people on the table and they just kind of like coalesce around an idea and they get this form of groupthink because no one challenges the thoughts. Well, if you have a bunch of people with similar backgrounds, similar upbringing, similar everything, I think you just get into groupthink a lot faster <laughs> with a diverse set, aren't you? I mean, yeah, you're, you're, you're at risk of it anyway, because you're all working together so much and then working yeah. for the same organization. I mean, you might as well give yourself the advantage of like, hey, we're not starting with, <laughs> you know, as clones of each other. Yeah, it's it's surprising. It, like, you know, even this idea, I kind of come back to, again, the traditional mindset that, you know, I, I grew up in and cut my teeth in the industry, which which was maximize shareholder value and this underlying implicit assumption that if you did something positive, it had to, it had to cost, it had to be at a cost. 
And I think yeah. that's largely been dispelled that sometimes it, it has a cost, but sometimes it doesn't. There are just well, it's impossible to look at that from a from a single framework, right? I mean, like so every business out there is is wildly different. Like, don't get me wrong. I, you know, if you're a toxic waste disposal company, I think you got a pretty hard time trying to figure out how to do things ethically. Sure. I mean, well, not ethically, but do things with a minimal impact on the environment. That's your job, but there's always right. going to be a footprint, right? Whereas if you're an app developer, right, like how hard is it? to really like include diversity of opinion, like all that. It's just, it's really, I think it just, you can't look at all business through the same lens. No, I, I, I think that's right. It's just, it's just, we're coming from a world where like, again, the implicit was like, oh, if it's something good or positive, it's going to make the world a better place. It's definitely going to cost us something. And that's touchy feely. And, and it just like, when you just think about it as like, I don't know, just by and large, would you say that a, a business that's governed well, that's responsible about how it cleans up its messes and, and how it interacts and treats it's people well. I don't know. I just think like, oh yeah, no, that sounds like a better investment. Like, well, that's, yeah. <laughs> well, I also, I also say is, so what, what makes you think that the only parameter for what people want is return, right? Like so, being able to sleep at night and knowing that, oh yeah, I didn't have anything invested in that company that did that horrible thing the other day, right? Like, I think there are people in this world who want to know that that's not the case, right? There are, you know, there's, everybody's got at least one company in this world that they probably can't stand dealing with, right? And knowing that part of your investment portfolio is in there may be something you don't want to do. Now, we'll, we'll come back to the entire return concept and, and, sure. and multi-dimensions of return, uh, lastly. But before we get there, I want to talk. I want to touch upon uh, something else, which is in particular another branch of, of social responsible investing altogether, which is impact investing. Can you speak to me about what impact investing is? Yeah, so impact investing is where you have, unlike ESG investments or like socially responsible investments, which are typically traditional businesses where you, you know, these businesses are making shoes, they're disposing of waste, they're producing oil, whatever the case is. And they are going about that when you talk about ESG or socially responsible businesses, they're going about doing that in a way that is as responsible as possible to minimize the damage and, and potentially maximize the positive impacts of what they're doing as much as possible. Impact investments, on the other hand, are made into businesses that the entire business is set up to solve a problem. Like it's not, I'm making shoes and how do I do that better? It's, hey, our actual business here, our, our business model is solving some sort of problem. So I, I, I like it. This is a small impact investment based out of uh, Toronto that that works uh, kind of internationally called Lucky Iron Fish. And I use it as like a really kind of neat example. It's uh, how I kind of distinguish that. So Lucky Iron Fish was, uh, as I mentioned, kind of created out of Toronto. There's a doctor who did a lot of work in um, Cambodia and uh, anemia is a big problem in Cambodia because diets there, largely poor population diets mm. are very starch heavy. So a lot of noodles and rices and not getting a lot of iron in their diets. And so he was looking at how do we you know, reduce anemia rates? We need to improve the, increase the iron in their diets. How do we get them to ingest more iron? And iron tablets aren't particularly effective because they are very hard on the stomach. And mm. also you just have a hard time, you know, some strangers coming in and saying, here, take this pill. Yeah. A little bit like, well, why do I want to do that? And is it worth yeah, it? Yeah. Pills are medicine, it. right? They're not food. Yeah. That's the way people look at it. Yeah. And there's a trust factor and there's, and it's also just remembering to do it and all that. So well, he came up with the idea of like making an iron puck. Literally, it's a puck of iron and you put, they make a lot of stews in Cambodia. And so they could just put this in the stew while it's stewing all day. It's literally leaching iron into the into their yeah. stews. And that's how they're increasing their iron intake. And it didn't really take off, but he somebody came up with the idea. I'm not sure actually who it was, but press that puck into the shape of a fish because a fish is a, is a lucky symbol in Cambodia and adoption rates uh. went through the roof. But the point is that they sell this product. It's not a, they don't give it away. 
charity, the humanitarian organizations often buy them because it's a remarkably effective way to reduce anemia rates. And they also kind of have a buy one, give one. So they sell it in developed markets as well, where some percentage of the population faces anemia. And you can put it in your water or you can put it in your food, you know, whatever you want. And they, you know, for everyone that's bought, they give one. So, you know, we could debate the merits of the business model, but the point the is- The business is not set up for profit maximization. It's set up for multiple parameters of success, which is, right. yeah, one you know, of which is a profit. I mean, the yeah. more profit they make, the more they can grow their business and expand, and they got to pay salaries and all that. But the, again, is that as profitable potentially as, as other business models? We can debate that. But the point is, the more successful the business is, the more they sell of what they do, the better, the more impact that they're having or yeah. should be having on the world. So impact investments have a stated intention and go about to make an impact, positive impact, and then go about measuring that impact. Yeah. And I'm going to take the time to plug someone I know's uh, initiative, which is probably one of the most, I think still one of the most successful impact investments in Canadian history, which was SolarShare. Uh, mm-hmm. Michael Brigham was behind that. And it's a cooperative that essentially raised money to install tons of massive solar projects around North America. And the way they did it was they knew they were going to get guaranteed contracts coming from the government, but they needed they needed money to pay for all this. So they floated a bond that would pay 5%. Uh, this was a couple of years ago, which was a little bit higher. It paid 5%. And essentially, they would re- they even had a sinking fund coming up that would, re- would retire the bond. So they used the bond money to buy the solar properties, put it up. They would make money off the property, pay a split to the landlord, and there was enough money coming in, guaranteed from governments from the from the estimated production, that they were able to turn around and pay off, you know, continue to pay that five percent, but also retire a lot of these bonds. So, wildly successful project. Heat in tariffs are no longer as as lucrative as they used to be, so it doesn't the economics don't necessarily work as well anymore. But overall. I mean, there is a perfect example, right? There is a way that investors made a pretty decent good return, right? Maybe, maybe in a free market where with that kind of risk profile, the bond rate would have been seven, seven and a half. But if you're making five and also at the same time helping build the solar infrastructure across North America, hey, that's a great message for people. Yeah, hundred percent. There's another firm, Copower, which I know you're you're familiar with, and they yep. they do similar things where they're they're financing kind of green energy efficient infrastructure that it's typically not getting financed by in traditional channels through banks and investment banks and all that. And so they're going to investors who care about financing this and they're using it to finance solar, but also geothermal LED yeah. retrofits on condominium buildings, right? Where the condo says like, hey, they've got all this kind of old lighting. We can install LED lighting and it's going to dramatically reduce your, your energy and electricity bill and demand and carbon footprint and don't have the upfront funds to pay for it or getting like the condo board to agree to incur the cost of the entire retrofit is difficult sometimes. And so they, they, they fund it upfront and you pay it back through the, the energy savings, which is fairly predictable. Yeah, win-win. Yeah, win-win. No, it's, uh, it's, it's just another way of basically finding win-win situations that basically have a specific stated purpose, like you said. I mean, the challenge with this industry in general is it's always been a cottage industry, quite honestly. But lately, luckily, there's more and more involvement. There's been a couple of, there's been a couple of private, well, near private issues of large pooled funds in, uh, in Ontario. I'll, I'll give a shout out to Rally Assets for their recent uh, floating of that first kind of of its client in Canada, partially private, partially public. Uh, I've also seen a couple of other um, large scale mutual fund companies looking to come to market with what they call an impact sleeve that unfortunately, if, if it's a private company, it's hard to get into the, the average investor's hands. 
But if it's there are several public companies out there that do have social mandates as part of what they're doing and do focus on impact. So those companies are starting to attract a, a pool of capital specifically for doing that sort of thing. So it is possible to, you know, a lot of times there's amongst certain groups, a negative cultural connotation to corporations just being these greedy, uh, these greedy beasts, which I'm always, I always find bizarre because corporations are people. They're not, they're not <laughs> things. Yeah. So it's just a series of decisions made by a bunch of people. But those people can basically now be rewarded in terms of capital pools for making decisions that are benevolent upon the rest of the universe. So the biggest pushback we always hear on this is, is this, this misnomer or this debate. Most advisors in the space will often believe that, oh, no, if you do that, your returns are going to be worse. This is a there's some truth to that. There's some fiction to that. And there's this nuanced debate. So tell me about your stance on it. I'll, I'll add in a couple of points in my general thoughts. Yeah. So Go I think that. The answer is it depends, and that's as you know as, as dissatisfying as that may be. That is the standard financial planning answer to every question everything. asks. Yeah. Everything it always depends. There is no universal law. Of course, and if you want a yes or a no, if the question is, do you have to sacrifice return to make a positive impact? Unequivocally, no, you don't have to. The question yeah, is, so what type of impact do you want to make? We can give very clear examples where doing something po slightly positive is actually going to improve your return. That's like, but that, you know, it, it all depends on the, how you phrase the question. If you said, will you always improve your return if you make a positive impact? No, definitely not. No. <laughs> so, you know, depend, like, so the answer is it depends. <laughs> At a yeah, minimum, it I depends mean, on how you phrase that question. Exactly. I mean, a lot of the people will point to, I mean, in general, people, the general belief is, well, if I cut out a bunch of stuff, I'm not going to do as well. Okay, well, fine. But if you look at the the actual returns on ESG investments in the last 10, 15 years, they've actually outperformed the general index. Now, that said, it's a very short timeline, right? Yep. 10 to 15 years sounds like a long time, but now when it comes uh, to data, now when it comes to parsing data, it's not. And frankly, ESG tends to skew towards growth factors, which have done very well in the last little while. Now, I will give you the alternate, the alternate theory, which uh, for the record, Ben Felix covered very well on an episode of Common Sense Investing and another episode of uh, Rational Reminder. Yes, we had uh, a lively podcast. debate on uh, Twitter. Well, that was, I almost had to break you boys up on Twitter. Right. That was funny. But the academic literature is pointing towards that, yes, there is a cost. But and I'll preface this by saying that it really falls down on the argument of if you start withholding capital from one group and giving it to another, what that does is lower their cost of capital, and therefore they can invest in lower return projects, whereas the other one has a higher cost of capital and can only invest in higher return projects over time. If you don't hit some sort of equilibrium, then that group is going to basically, the, the group that's got the higher cost will likely outperform. Also, some of the, the outperformance that we've seen can be attributed to the fact that there's a growth tilt. The growth tilts historically underperform value tilts. And I might say historically, they can underperform for 10, 15 years, but typically value roars back and smacks the crap out of growth at some point. Now, does that happen in the future? Who knows? But there is a legitimate ar academic argument for why there is an underperformance. However, that said, I always come back to the uh, debate of, so what? Because that's not the primary reason people are doing this, right? If you basically, you know, this is about informed consent. If you say to people, look, you could do as well. Academia says you're probably going to do a little bit worse. Recent track record says you're going to do a little bit better. We don't know for sure. But one thing's for sure, you're going to do something. You're going to invest in a way that's more in line with your values and hopefully have a pot more positive impact on the world. Do you want to make that trade-off? There's plenty of people who are absolutely going to say yes, mm -hmm. right? So I liken it to, you would rather earn 7% basically polluting the air with coal, as this the worst example, and or I'll, I'll give, or would you rather earn 6% generating power from renewable resources? Some people are going to be like, renewable resources are BS, I want the coal. 
I want the higher return, but I have to think that most people are going to stop and say, okay, that's the, that's the trade-off you're giving me. I'll, I'll definitely consider the, the slightly lower return because, Hey, yeah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to do these things. I wouldn't do that in my normal life. Why would I do that with my investing? Yeah, no, I, th- I so I think you're, we're actually, I don't think we disagree at all. I mean, my, my disagreement with the, the Twitter you know, argument that we had was really just about the only honest answer we can give to this question is we don't know. No, no. Ben yeah, you, I think Ben's argument was that thus far, the best research he's seen yeah. points to yeah. it, there being a cost, which I'm willing to accept. That's but fine. I if think if it's somebody not- says to me, like, listen, I've done research and I think there's a really good academic kind of theoretical case here for why you, you, you gave two things. One was the past data shows that it did outperform. There's good reasons to maybe discount that and say why that might not continue because it's tilted towards growth factors. Growth happened to do well. I've also got this theory that this is what should happen logically, and this is what economic theory suggests. And I don't have any problem with that. It makes sense. Yeah. But to say that, you know, but like the world is littered with people with academic theories that are eventually proven wrong. So I think the yeah. only answer we can say is I've got a theory. This yeah. is what I think. But, you know, we just don't actually know because yeah. we don't have enough data. <laughs> uh, you know, it's and, interesting. And so, we just don't know the, what the future holds. So yeah, like, I think that's it's, the only honest answer to that question. Well, I mean, I think there is definitely parsing to the, there is definite validity to the academic study. But again, I think part of it, but I've also seen other things. So for example, uh, Dimensional Fund Advisors is got, they have a lot of uh, ESG products in the US to come to Canada with that. And in their analysis, they've shown that, hey, if we we're going to apply this in a scientific way, like they do with everything else. And they come up with certain screens and certain weighting factors. And, you know, there's certain things like if your carbon foothold, footprint is beyond whatever, they're going to reduce your exposure or eliminate you for X. So they got their entire system. Uh, system. And then they've tested that against what if they had done that the entire time versus their traditional portfolios. And what they found is that they really haven't given up much return. There's been a little bit more volatility. What they found is that there's been a trade-off in the factors. So they, they're typically exposed less to value and more exposed to small cap and less exposed exposed to, to cash flow. But when you added those three factors and how they traded off together, it still ended up with the with a performance that was not statistically significant from the different groups. So I think part of it also comes down to how is it you're defining this, right? right? Like how is it you're defining uh, social responsible investing? So I want to say two things on this. So that's part of why I think your only honest answer is we don't know. I mean, even like, let's take the you know, the academic theory or the, you know, any research you've seen that says that they should, uh, they should underperform. Well, the, how are you defining that? We don't even, like, we haven't even agreed upon our terms in this industry. Never mind. You know, I mean, there's some agreement. I'm overstating that a little bit, but like, until you can say like, Hey, listen, we've all got one uniform de- definition. Like in any of those cases, you have to define what yeah. you mean by ESG or socially responsible. And if you change those parameters, you have to redo the analysis or the study or the, or the research. So if you look at DFA's results, well, depending on, on if you change the underlying factors that they're testing, you know, you might get very different results, right? For how you define social responsibility. Yeah. And uh, the second thing I'll say is I think, and so I, I agree with your conclusion, which is like, I just don't even think this is a productive discussion because I think what we'd be better to do is focus our time on like, let's talk about returns, but let's just stop talking about only financial returns because like your investments generate all sorts of returns right. and they are social returns, environmental returns. And that may sound like kind of admittedly, that still kind of sounds fluffy and like, you know, far out there, but it's not. I mean, we're- but It like, doesn't have to be. It could be personal experience, right? Like I have, I, we have clients who who basically were involved with, with legal associations, like suing oil and gas firms for unfortunate treatment of labor 
that happened overseas, right? Including like horrific accidents, right? And, you know, spending time trying to get these victims money. And, you know, from what they saw in that fight, they're like, I don't ever want to own a single dollar in any oil and gas producer. And I can't fault them for that, right? They had that personal experience, right? I think one of the things that's going to be interesting and one of the trends developing in the U.S. is there's a trend towards direct indexing. Now that they have, now that a couple of uh, platforms in the U.S. are zero cost to trade, you've seen Schwab and Fidelity start to offer direct indexing to their direct to their direct to consumer channel. So that means instead of owning the S&P 500 ETF, you own all 500 shares because now you can own them in fractions. We don't have that in Canada yet. But what I think is exciting about that is the ability to now overlay your value system onto that. So you can apply the same ESG screens. You can get data from different companies to, to apply screens. I even met a company that once actually put together a LGBTQ friendly index by looking at companies' policies towards towards LGBT people of LGBTQ uh, affiliation, whatever you want to, whatever full acronym you want to use for that. But the point is, is that they overlaid that data, screened out companies, and they and they basically said, hey, this is what matters to you. You could do this, right? You started thinking about the possibility for doing that, but also picking out specific names like, oh, you know, I don't want to deal with Canadian banks. Yeah. But, uh, you know, for example, I get, you know, my, my family member got unjustly fired by this company and treated incredibly poorly, right? Hey, if that matters to you, let's respect that. Let's show you the deviation from the, the, the default market portfolio. If you're willing to accept that, fine, right? But right now, we're not quite there, but it's an exciting, exciting possibility happening. Yeah, I, you know, I agree completely. And that will, I think, revolutionize our ability to customize. Because you know, one of the big complaints you know, is, well, you, know, you buy this SRI portfolio and then three people look at it. One person's happy with it and two other people are like, whoa, that, that's not what I mean by socially responsible. Yeah. So you know, being well, able to customize it for individuals' preferences, I think, you know, changes is a, is a game changer. And I'd be very excited when we have that. Well, well, I think I saw you, I think you said it in a previous interview somewhere where it was like, you know, it's, you know, you learned it's very hard to outsource your, your beliefs, right? Because a simple example I have is a client who came back at one point and said, you know, I want to move from this company to whatever else you have, because it was already a social responsible investing company. It's like, I'm like, why? It's like, well, so they invest in Caterpillar. I'm like, okay. And he's like, he's like, well, they sell, you know, they sell equipment to the state of Israel to, to plow over Palestinian homes. And at that point, I just threw my hands up in the air and I'm like, like, if we weren't face to face, I'm like, okay, that's your definition, man. But I, it's going to be really hard to meet. Like I basically said to him, like there is, I cannot promise you there's any general product on the market that is going to exactly line up with your values. So we'll go through everything and you are going to have to make the best strategic decision with the available opportunities set. And even with, with the client process we have is that if they answer yes to, you know, learning more about it, it's a conversation. It's like, okay, what is it? First question is, what does that mean to you? Yeah. Right. What does that mean to you? And so the very first thing I start every conversation with when we get into these conversations with clients, like this, your portfolio will not be perfect. You will, there will be some aspect of it you are not happy with yep. if you dig deep enough and you look, cause it's a rabbit hole, right? The more you start to go down that rabbit hole, the more you realize, oh, what about this? What about that? What about that? And you can't ever have the, the underlying portfolios of moving parts and changing variables and the businesses are making decisions and changing. So don't make perfect the enemy that good. And so this is often used as a, as a, you know, look, this SRI portfolio has this, this, and this in it. And most people would be shocked. So that means it's social, not socially responsible. Look how silly this idea is. And that's just preposterous to me because oh, what, so we shouldn't ever try to make any progress because yeah. it won't be perfect from day one. I mean, let's just take the wins where we can get them. Don't make perfect the enemy of the good yeah. and just accept that it won't be perfect. And we'll try to make it better and better as the options improve and we get 
you know, more sophisticated and you, and even the client, like you get a better understanding about what's important to you and figure out where your trade-off lies between practical practicality and like your values. Yeah. And one of the things we do have to address though, is that there can be a cost differential with some of this stuff. I mean, I think we yeah, both have sure. griped in particular about how expensive compared to non-SRI options we find some of these products. Although that being said, I'm happy to say that that is changing. There is a lot more lower cost product coming on the market, except for when it comes, I tell you, this is the bane of my existence. When I try to put together a fossil fuel free mandate and look at the underlying cost as being double of what I'm doing elsewhere, just because lack of options. So, so let me ask you this. So when you, when you deal with clients who basically look at that and you discuss the fee differential, like how does that conversation go? Like, is that something they're willing to pay for? Is there resistance? Are there alternatives that you, you address? I'd say most of our clients, the fee differential is not discouraging them. And that said, you know, I'm very mindful about fees and try to find options that, you know, keep that fee differential as, as small as possible. So I don't ever advocate anybody take it lightly. For a long time, it's the reason why I didn't like, well, Simple's SRI option, because it was just for the price differential. I didn't feel like it was, they've made some some meaningful changes to their SRI portfolio. They went and created their own ETFs because they basically couldn't, uh, they were they were sick of it being too expensive, which are available to everybody now. Yeah, so and so, the, so I think it's actually improved the portfolio and to reduce the cost now, which is which is a nice win. But yeah, so, but most of our clients, like I think it, getting back to this, like what do you value and what are you willing to pay for it if needed? And, and right now there is a big, pretty meaningful cost differential, but I mean, that ultimately the cost question is a return question, right? Because we know that that yeah. just one for one reduces well, your return by that exact amount. Bingo. So if someone listening to this wants to get started talking to their advisor about investing along the lines of their beliefs and values, like what do you suggest how that conversation should start or what do they come to the table with? I mean, because the industry is still so full of advisors who are not knowledgeable about this space and we're particularly willing to engage it. I mean, what I'd probably start with is to test the waters. I mean, if you're, you're advisors never had a conversation to you about it before, you could sort of start by with a real honest kind of innocent question like, you know, what do you think about ESG and SRI investing? I mean, it will, their response to it will probably speak volumes about whether they're likely to be able to help you with it. So for instance, if their response is, oh, that's a load of nonsense and you're going to lose your returns and it's going to cost you a fortune and you're not going to meet your financial goals, what are you thinking? There's probably not much point in continuing the conversation with them. I mean, you can try to argue with them and debate, but it, you know, if an advisor doesn't know much about the space and just feels threatened by it because they don't know much about it, you're going to have a hard time getting much of anywhere. And I think you kind of need to either think, think how badly you care about it and then either find another advisor or not. I mean, you can ask them explicitly about, well, I, hey, it does matter to me. I'd like to get invested. But if, they're, if their initial reaction is so anti-averse to it, you're going to have a hard battle ahead of you. Either knowledgeable or, or willing to engage it, then great you know, continue a conversation. Yeah. It's interesting you say that on two fronts. First off, I mean, like that is a common response and it's just like, wait, way to tell your clients that what matters to them doesn't matter to you. Like that is just terrible way to handle that conversation. Right. I'd be Um, firing my advisor if they said that to me. Yeah. It's like, it's like, what's really important to me is that I give a bunch of money to my kid who needs money. No, no, you should never do that. Right. Like, no, now you're letting, no, you want to, you want to talk about trade-offs. You want to talk about everything else. We can do that. But like, just outright dismissing is just not respecting someone's values. 
And it's interesting because on, on countless occasions, we get, I get prospects coming in and uh, conversation goes the normal way it normally does. And then, you know, they'll ask a question like, what about social responsible investing? And I said, yeah, we support that. A certain percentage of our, of our, of our client base will specifically do that. What we need to have is a conversation about what your definition of that is and does it match the market and making sure that there's an understanding of that and we'll explore options together. And I kid you not, almost every time the response is, wow, that is a very different answer than everyone else I've spoken to. I'm like, I'm, let me guess. They all try to talk you out of it right away. Well, yeah. Like, what do they have against it? I'm like, big question other than lack of understanding, right? So I think that's a big part of it, right? And listen, yeah. like, to be fair, it's kind of, you take a big group of humans, not everyone's going to respond this way, but in you then you put them on the spot on something they don't know anything about in an area where they feel like they need to have all the answers. They need to be able to be the expert. They're going to feel insecure, right? Yeah. So it shouldn't be surprising. It's a, not a good behavior. We don't kind of want to reward it, but it is a, just a reality and kind of understandable how that happens. Well, I mean, Stephen Covey said, every, well, it's a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Like when you think you've got the portfolio that's going to work for everybody and, you know, someone says, well, what about something else? You're just so used to swinging that hammer, right? You start to realize, maybe you need to realize it's a screw, not a nail, right? And then change your, t- change your tool set. But it's, and the last um, thing I'll just say, I want to say quickly is like, yeah, I, I think advisors need to really think like a lot of advisors, again, I'm talking about kind of the masses and not, you know, there's exceptions, obviously, and there's good advisors out there. But the, there's a lot of them that they think that their value is that they're putting together the best portfolio and they're going to select the best investments, they're going to make the best calls, they're going to produce the best return. And that's just not the case. I mean, it's hard enough for the best institutional investors in the world. This is the most competitive arena in the world, the, the stock market, right? And so yep. like, unless you've got the best people, the best resources and the scale necessary to keep your costs as low as possible, you don't have a chance of outperforming. Yep. And so, you know, John in Burlington working on his own is not beating the market. So his yep. value is is not that. His value should be, how do I make sure that my client feels good about this, has a prudent risk management? And by the way, one of those things can be expresses their values, in their portfolio, yep. that matters to them. Yep. That is something I can do. <laughs> yeah, and I think I would actually say best is now measured by number of PhDs in computer science and yeah. uh, technology, as opposed Rapidly to changed. how many guys you have reading reading charts. Pouring uh, through so, prospectus. Yeah, <laughs> no, that that ain't best. Anyway, so you know, it's interesting, and I brought this. I brought you specifically on a, a business owner podcast in particular because I mean, I think one of the messages to take away from here is that every business owner listening, they conduct themselves in a certain way. Many of them would basically probably not invest in companies that did not share their belief structure. I mean, if you were approached to make an investment in your friend's business and that friend was, you know, on an ESG metric, terrible. He was a polluter, illegal dumper, treated his employees terribly, cheated on his taxes. Are you really cutting a check? Like, are you really going to cut a check for that? You're not, right? Nor would, if you're a business owner, really expect to be able to get full market value for selling your business if that was your operation as well, right? So it's not a foreign concept to people who've been in leadership to basically understand that leadership has to make calls that sometimes are maybe suboptimal to profitability, but are just the right thing to do. So that's kind of just a close the loop on this. So before we go, I just want to give you an opportunity. Thank you for coming on. And where can people find you? So kindwealth.ca is where you can find us. And uh, I've got a blog there. I've got a podcast on impact investing. If anybody's interested called the Impact mm-hmm. Investing Podcast. It's on available on all the platforms. So that's where you can find me. Excellent. And thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Jay. It's a lot of fun. So that was my interview with David O'Leary. I hope you enjoyed that. And as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. 
This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.